Hello, and welcome from the Renaissance Baptist Church of Brooklyn in Ontario, Canada. Join us this week as Pastor John Blackman shares from the book of 1 Corinthians. Christians aren't supposed to take Christians to court. It says so in the Bible. It's not biblical. Let's pray. Wait, there's, there's probably more to it than that, right? In the first half of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, that's what we're dealing with this morning. It's, it's true that it's one of the places in Scripture where uh, there's teaching that involves uh, God's people and, and court, uh, uh, teaching about Christians in court, sort of, because it's actually a bunch of Christians who uh, think they are super wise and spiritual, yet the fact that they can't solve simple disputes within their Christian community shows that maybe their estimation of their maturity is something that is a little bit suspect. Last week we talked in chapter 5 about leaven and lumps, and, and one of the things we talked about is how, you know, our sin is never really just our own, and that... Uh, The uh, passage we're going to look at this morning kind of shows the flip side of that, that not only is it not just our own, it it does harm not only, and it also harms the community. We talked about that last week, but then it even harms then the testimony out there in the community of the Christian community on the inside, and and why why is that such a big deal? Um, You know, it affects the display side of displaying Jesus as the center of all life, that line that we throw around here so much. Uh, one of the things that I get afraid of is that we say it so much, it just becomes a line. And uh, we don't unpack it and think about what it means. Um, you know, it's not just that we're just supposed to look pure and clean, and now the job's done. You know, so we can just get the leaven out and uh, just follow the ten rules. The catechism today is perfect for this passage, by the way. And, you know, then, then the job's done. Once we got the leaven out and we're like that nice... Leaven-free loaf, then, then perfect, we're ready to go. No, there's something more than that. Something that we didn't talk about last week is that bread has a purpose of being consumed, of providing nourishment, of somebody eating of it. Um, you know, so unleavened bread isn't just what we display. It's also what we're supposed to serve up. It reminds me of a time when Janine's sin I'm going to call out her sin this morning in our service, seriously affected the Lord's Supper once and left a really bad taste in people's mouth. And here's how it happened. Um, Janine's sin is she doesn't like cleaning paintbrushes. She likes to paint. She doesn't like cleaning paintbrushes. And one time on Pinterest she heard this secret trick that you just wrap your paintbrush in saran wrap, throw it in the freezer, boom, you don't have to clean it, right? So next time you pull it out, Thaw that sucker out, and you can start painting again. It's so easy. And uh, except we were doing a lot of renovations at the church back in the day, and uh, she'd been using turpentine to clean brushes and paint and all that kind of stuff. And so she uh, threw her paintbrushes in the freezer here, and that's where they sat for months like they do at home. And uh, I, we were away, and we had an intern named Dave. And I said, Dave, don't worry about it. We got all the stuff you need to do communion. We got, we got enough pita in the freezer. We got grape juice. You're all set up, so you just have to worry about leading in communion for the first time. And when I got home, Dave was a little mad at me because there he was serving communion, and everybody's taking this bread, and it's like, 
this tastes like turpentine, you know? Like, what kind of pita bread is this? Like, it just left a bad taste in people's mouths. And that's a little bit about what Paul's concerned about in this passage, that this leaven and, and the immaturity of this community is leaving a bad taste in people's mouth out there, or at least not the taste and the flavor that they're supposed to be giving out into the community that God can use to show that he is the great God overall. Um, in chapter 6, he's, he's concerned about food safety and what they're serving out. They had way too much turpentine in the bread of life they were claiming to represent. Uh, and last week, uh, chapter 5 and chapter 6, they're all one big argument here. And just so my sermon last week wasn't two hours long, we've divided it up. But there's a bunch of themes that have been going on all the way through Corinthians. And one of them is this whole idea of wisdom. Uh, you know, Paul's not just trying to show them up that they're not as wise as they think they are. The problem is they're holding on to a certain kind of wisdom that's really leavening the loaf, really putting turpentine into the, into the recipe, and it, it's completely counter to the reason why God had called them out. And, and, and this wisdom is showing up in various ways. It's showing up in how they're judging uh, their leaders and having their celebrity pastors. It's showing up in sexual sin in their congregation, and not just the sexual sin in their congregation, but then the congregation's attitude about it, that somehow they were proud of it. It showed how tolerant they were, and we talked about that last week. And now in this one, we're, we're going to see, oh, Janine just came in, and she doesn't know I was talking about her sin. Um, this, week, this week, we uh, are looking at something where um, uh, something's happening. They're, they're taking something out into the community, and it's, it's really concerning. But again, it's showing that they're making decisions. They're judging leaders from the wrong source of wisdom. And as an apostle... Um, no, I'm going I'm to skip ahead. Uh, we, I talk, one of the things I said that we were given was the gospel account. We were given the gospel account. We talked about that judgment day when uh, everything's going to be judged as if by fire and uh, wood, hay, and stubble, and gold is going to all be separated. And for Paul, as an apostle, his ministry as an apostle was going to be judged by God someday. So Paul kind of said, hey, back off. Um, I am going to be judged for my, and I've laid a foundation but the implication is we will all go through that. And, uh, you know, Brian's not going to be judged for how he did as an apostle, uh, you know, it, it, because he's not an apostle. But we were given a trust. Paul was given the trust of this ministry as apostle. We were given his apostolic message. We were given the gospel account. We'll be, we'll be judged by how we've handled the gospel account and what we've done with it. Um, we've been entrusted with that. We were supposed to take that gospel account and that accountability, and uh, in our passage today, taking that message into account, Paul's going to present us with something that's, that's seemingly simple, but it's actually quite complicated, and he's really just using it again as a mirror, like we already talked about this morning. Here's the simple idea. Church ought to be able to deal with stuff. Sounds pretty non-threatening, but he basically says, you know, church ought to be able to deal with stuff. He's saying that it's a shame, uh, that's his word, as we're going to read the passage in a minute, it's, it's a shame that the wise guys of, Con of Corinth, so proud of their wisdom, they betray the number one definition of godly wisdom, and that's not simply knowing the right thing to do, but actually doing it. Um, in chapter 5, they had an issue of sin that they were to take before the congregation, there would have been a bunch of other steps first before that as well. 
But, but in here, instead of saying, you know what, we got this thing going on, let's have a family meeting, let's work this out. Uh, instead, they're kind of saying just, hey, see you in court. So let's read our passage today. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 1. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. It's possible that there's nobody among you, oh, is it possible, I should say, is it possible that there's nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I'm just going to read that far this morning. Um, Look at all the different many words uh, and ideas that were used in that passage, um, bringing up the idea of judgment. Judgment is actually a huge calling for the body of Christ. It's strange. You know what the number one cliche is out there of, uh, you know, Christians? Uh, like, I've, I've used this before. We, even though we got a guy in the NFL that holds up John 3.16 all the time, you would think that's the most well-known verse, but it's like, Christians aren't supposed to judge. Judge not. And it, it is true. Paul's already said in here, it's not my business to be judging disputes out there in the world. But he is saying in here it is. Uh, it, it might be a funny conversation starter if people say, oh, you're a Christian? Christians are so judgy. Why are Christians so judgy all the time? And you could say to them, um, actually, there's this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you think we're judgy now, we're just getting started. Because <laughs> there's this big roll ahead. You know, and then that could be, what? And, and you know, you might be able to use that in a conversation to talk about, th there will be a judgment day someday. Um, and, and, and we're somehow in this passage called into that. I'm going to come back to that. Um, look at Paul's question in chapter 5, verse 12. This is just an example of that. Uh, in chapter 5, there was this sin, and they were to make a judgment about that. They were supposed to differentiate, you know, this is cool, that's not cool. This is holiness, that's not holiness. This is bread, that's leaven. Leaven affects the lump, we need to remove the leaven. That person needs to leaven out out there in the, in the whole process and realize, yeah, I, I want to be part of the loaf and, and come back into the, to the loaf. Um, here, uh, if you look at his question in chapter 5, verse 12, he says, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? 
So again, the uh, anti-Christians are so judgy, we jump on that and say, yeah, there's that verse that says we're not supposed to judge those outside. But there's an inference in this, I think you would say, where Paul's saying, in-house we are. <laughs> That's the other side of that statement. He's saying an obvious thing. Within the community of faith, we are to care about these things. That's not our business, but we still have business. We still have business to do. Um, so in verse 1, you have a family dispute. He's saying, why, why would you take that outside to be dealt with? Uh, implying there's a failure to, to take care of this situation. And you're kind of offloading it, outsourcing it. You're basically asking a civil court to identify sin and where's repentance needed and to provide healing on that vertical relationship with God we talked about last week or the horizontal relationship with one another, or even that internal relationship where we do things that are self-damaging. We're going to go to Judge Judy for that? Think of, this is, think of Paul, as he's writing this, so Jewish, so trained in the law. I'll read his, read his resume in, in Philippians. This is not an all-Jewish congregation, but many Jewish people in there that have had the law for generations, this beautiful thing that they know. And he's like, you've already got what you need to discern right from wrong within the community of faith. So, so again, think about it. This is a group of people saying we are so mature. We're so together. We got it going on. We got all these spiritual gifts. We're good. And Paul's like, how about this example? I think that's why he's bringing this one to their attention. Um, in verses 2 and 3, uh, that's another uh, example of all of this talking about judgment. He's, and Paul's assuming they know something. I can't necessarily assume that, that you all know about today. Here's that idea about, uh, oh, we're just getting started. Um, is that there is this big day of judgment. Some of you are really curious, like, well, what is this? You know, we're going to be judging the world. We're going to be judging angels. What's all that about? I'm going to come back to it later. So right now I'm just going to kind of skip over that. And uh, I'm just going to reread verses 4 to 8 here for us this morning. And Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there's nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Have you ever seen fake bread that looks so real that you're disappointed when you picked it up? Like stagers. They got all this cool stuff now, right? That's a, such a big industry. You know, and you can be coming by, and it's like, oh, man, that bread looks, oh, and it's like, it's made out of plaster Paris. It's painted so well. It looks so great. Um, that's not what Paul's recommending here. He's not saying, hey, you guys, this really harms your testimony, so just sweep it under the church rug so that out on the street it looks like you got it all together. That's not what he's talking about here. He's not saying, just keep your infighting and disputes under wraps and so you won't damage your testimony. He is saying, do deal with it here. Whatever it is, we don't even know from the passage. That's why a lot of times we would love to know, so where's the dividing line here between... Uh, you know, what, what a Christian should deal with in court and what should be done at a church business meeting. You know, if you're a little nervous, I'm just going to say to you, if, if somebody, if, 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 if I'm to hear or any of our other people here were to hear that somebody 
in our church did something inappropriate with your child at one of your programs, we're not going to say, you know, Scotty and I'll just go over and talk to that woman that's accused of doing that, and we'll just deal with it in-house, you know. No, we've already gone on record saying, if this happens, here's what we'll do. We will inform the authorities, and, and that, that will be their thing to deal with. Now, that wouldn't be all we would do. We wouldn't just say, okay, that's done. We'll still try to do our work as the community of faith. But, you know, that's just one example where we already have a child protection policy that says we will do our due diligence and we will provide this protection for your children. Um, you think of uh, prenuptial agreements. If I was being grilled, uh, if, I was, if this was like 26 years ago or whenever it was that I went through an ordination grilling, this is the kind of question people would say, you know, when you give your statement on what's a biblical marriage, they might say, well, pastor, what do you uh, think of prenuptial agreements? And I would have known, you know, the right answer that they're looking for. I probably would have been able to give it was, well, that's kind of up in front at the beginning of the whole thing. You're like planning on what you're going to do when you break up. So, you know, I don't think that's a good idea, and so I'm against prenuptial agreements. It's probably what I said, would have said then. And then the older I got, I realized, I've, I've got one. So do you. Like, you stood in front of witnesses, and you made vows, and you gave oaths in your marriage ceremony that these, this is the relationship that we're, I, I vow, I vow in front of these witnesses to love, honor, obey, put you before all others, keep myself only unto you. Those, those are arrangements that have been made. We we signed, you know, we signed, uh, Ezra and Beth signed theirs back there, I think. They signed a document. They, they entered into a binding agreement. I still disagree with the whole idea of, hey, we're only going to be together for a few years, so I want to know what happens to the car after we get divorced. That's not a great idea. That's not the attitude I'm talking about. Just that it's not so easy to divide up, right, this, this court and legalities and, and what we do within the community of faith. Um, if you and I sign a business contract and we file and notarize that, legal authorities of our province, we've already, in a way, kind of gone to court. And, and it, it's a bit fuzzy to assume to know how Paul would rule on uh, expecting a, a church business meeting to rule on, for and against who owns what in the win-losses of an arrangement like that. Um, you know, again, I don't want to speculate on what the nature is. You know, there could be many situations where the raw who owes what, where, and who, and how may not be for church business meetings. But here's a loaded question. Verse 7, are you willing to be a loser? That's what he says in verse 7. This is getting a little bit more to the heart of the matter. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Remember I talked about last week, like church discipline and dealing with sin is always going to seem like we're dealing in our second language in an age of tolerance. Well, in a world of winners and doggy dog and get mine, it's like chalk on the chalkboard to stumble across a verse that says, well, maybe you should just be willing to be wronged or cheated in a dispute with your brother. Where does that come from? What is that going for? I might ask the question here, how do you much do you care about the loaf? How much do you care about the loaf and its calling to be a representation of God's good plan for the world? Because in the end, it's not really just about court, is it? Is, is my concern for the power and calling and purpose of the church being called out from the darkness, God called us out from the darkness to be a people for himself that would proclaim his 
majestic name, the majestic name of God in all the earth, according to Psalm 8. I, I often teach that those are the brackets within we live our lives. So everything we do in the middle with warmth, height, and weight, and relationships is all meant to reflect the glory of God who's over all the earth. If you look at verse 8, if you're tracking along, since we're so easily deceived and we have a high, apt, incredibly high aptitude for rationalizing just about anything, including abusing freedom, Paul says more. Um, you know, he says, uh, instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. What, what's going on here? La- last week, I talked a little bit about the timing of God's ten words or the ten commandments. That they were given to people that had been made free. Um, they were to follow them in order to live within the freedom for which God, by his grace, provided for them. Um, they, were, they were for staying free and for displaying freedom. It's interesting when you think of the Ten Commandments that the way to display to the world that you've been made free by Christ or by God in his grace is by submission to someone else's will. See how contradictory this is to the way we usually think out there in the world? That our freedom is a submission. A submission. You don't see William Wallace riding around on his horse yelling, Submission! You know, we're all about freedom, right? Um, Let me keep going here. Where am I going with this? Uh, What I forgot to mention last week is that the more powerful something is, the clearer the instructions are that come with it. The more powerful something is, the clearer are the instructions usually of how to handle this powerful thing. So, you know, we're all glad that Scott, who um, someday he's going to fall asleep during catechism because he just worked nights last night now at the nuclear plant, and uh, here he is at church this morning. I'm glad that Scott put on his super suit. I've seen pictures of it. He, put on, he puts on his super suit in order to go into certain areas at the at the plant. I'm, good. I'm happy for that for Scott's health. I'm actually also happy for my health that when he's in there, he kind of follows the rules and instructions of how he's supposed to do stuff when he's down there. And because uh, that's pretty important, right? Because it's a pretty powerful thing that he's working with down there, down at the uh, generating plant. You know, I can be at my house and I can flick on a switch on my amp and uh, put a record on the turntable and crank it up to 11 and enjoy my freedom of... Uh, but I'm pretty glad that from Sleepy Scott down at the nuclear plant and then all of the wires and transformers and generators and towers and connections and all of the things that go all the way to my house, all these people following these laws that make this powerful thing free to use. And then, you know, even that some guy in, in Japan 35 years ago that soldered together my amp so because it has enough power to kill me, and meanwhile, all I do is flip on my switch, and, and I'm glad that they followed the laws, the freedoms for that great power that I had. Well, what Christ did on the cross is a great power through which God plans to transform the entire world. So it would make sense that it would, something that powerful would come with instructions, boundaries. So when I'm living, trying to, when we're living together as the bread, we're going to bump into stuff. Bang, what was that? Oh, that was God's boundary of what our freedom is. We need, we need to stay within this, to, to be the right kind of bread and leaven. Here's, here's the boundaries. Sometimes we'll find ourselves crashing through that wall, and by repentance we're called back. That's one of the things Scott was talking about this morning, to climb back in to freedom land, because it's, it's in here. 
Psalm 119 talks about God's laws as something that I run in, in the freedom of what God's prescribed. Now, that's a long gap and, tr- and rabbit trail between verses 7 and 8. What am I getting at? It's, it's this. The freedom God provided for us by Christ's death and resurrection is powerful. So God instructs us in the safe handling of his power through which he's energizing his plan. I realize I've almost said this already. Energizing his plan for bringing all things, all principalities and powers, putting every enemy underfoot until he finally, everything on heaven and earth reflects his majestic power and name. So that's a little bit behind why Paul can say in verses seven and eight, just let yourself be cheated. Rather than damage the reputation of his bride, um, just don't wrestle on the tracks until the train's right over. And don't take that out into the world because you know that the church is not necessarily going to rule in favor of you. But our Christian calling isn't just to suffer wrongly. We can't hide behind that. If all that was was those instructions, you could have a pretty good business model where I'm just going to do business with Christians because they're not allowed to take me to court. So that'll be a pretty lucrative. No, Paul's, Paul's saying, if, if you're trying to uh, um, determine from this passage what, what Paul believes about the role of the justice system, justice system in the world, um, you're, you're missing the point. Even Paul himself later on in life is going to appeal to Caesar. And you can look it up and figure, try to figure out what his motivation is. Is his motivation, I'm going to appeal to Caesar so that he can extend his life? Or is it so that this martyrdom that he knows is coming for him is going to be taken to the highest place so he can get the most impact out of the suffering he's doing for Christ? Either way, Paul even appeals to Caesar at one point. Here in this passage, he's more concerned about the fight going on and people being more concerned with winning that fight than the impact on the testimony of God's people that such behavior is creating. So see you in court is not considered by Paul to be a legit move for two people that First Corinthian Baptist to settle their differences. And that's when he starts really ramping things up in verse 9. He says, don't you realize, when you ask a question like that, don't you realize, you're assuming the person knows the answer. Um, one of the things is self-deception. Last week I invented a guy named Levon who uh, thought he was part of the loaf, but he was really 11 right? Self-deception. Being sent out was to make him see his leavenness. Paul's kind of giving a similar warning here to everyone who might not be guilty of the sin from back in chapter 5, that there are these people, remember, do you not realize that these kinds of people aren't inheriting the kingdom of God? Uh, We're going to take a look at at that list of the behaviors next week, because Paul's going to emphasize that. But uh, he says this idea, now I'm going back up to verse 2 and 3, though. So follow me back. Hope I'm not losing you yet by my rabbit trails. Now we're going to go back to this idea of this judgment of the world and judging angels. What's that all about? Paul's primarily referring to a passage in Daniel. And uh, there are passages in Revelation that talk about this judgment day and these thrones of judgment. And in Daniel chapter 7... Um, You can write down Daniel chapter 7. You can look at it later and read it. Um, There's this line that uh, in your English Bible, uh, like my NIV, verse 22 of uh, chapter 7 in Daniel says, Until the Ancient One, the Most High, 
came and judged in favor of his holy people. So that's how our best Bible translators try to translate with the Hebrew and the Greek and all of this. What Paul's quoting here is most likely from the Greek version of the Old Testament. That um, the, the, the translation, and then there's a couple of other books that aren't even in our Bible, and generally a Bible scholar say in the first century, there's definitely this clear vision of what Daniel's talking about, that Israel will be judging the world and in charge of the rules, and they'll be on top of the pyramid, and they will be judging the entire world. Um, faithful Jewish people completely in charge of judgment. So, um, so Paul just included you into God's holy people. That's one kind of cool thing here. He says this is going to be our role. But, but what's going on? What, what's the job we're doing? What, what are we being called to? Um, let me get at from another question. We're gifted with the Holy Spirit. For what purpose as a community of faith? Why does God grant us this great gift of the Holy Spirit? The Old Testament talks about there's going to be a day when God's law is going to be written on our hearts. It's going to be internalized. What is the purpose that God gives us the Holy Spirit? Uh, is, that be able, is that so that we can perform miraculous acts? Um, or at least be, on, be able to do things beyond all that we can ask or imagine because we have this power source? Is it in order to be able to speak to God and have our words translated? As the, the scripture talks about the Spirit speaks on behalf of us when we don't even have the words. And so, you know, like nothing's lost in translation from the pain and suffering in our hearts. And yes, that's one of the reasons. Uh, a giant piece of it is so that we can make righteous judgment to be able to discern right from wrong, good from evil. The Old Testament talks about the fact that you've shown me, God, what's good and what's required of me to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. God's Holy Spirit is given to us to enable us to know what that looks like, to enable us as a community of faith to discuss and figure out what that looks like. Um, so, Next thing, the next thing I want to slip into our definition, we're still trying to unpack what's, what's going on in Judgment Day and what's going to be my job that day. There's an incredibly important expression in the New Testament that's called the phrase, in Christ. It's huge in Paul's teaching that we're in Christ and, and to be in Christ. If, if you're saved, you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you're, you're not even a believer and this whole discussion is not really applying for you except Judgment Day is still coming. So what does it mean to be in Christ? Well, when you hear about judging fallen angels, um, do you imagine a scenario where there's a courtroom and somebody says, all rise, the Honorable Judge Justine McKenzie. This court is in order. It, it'll be in heaven. There'll be no more marriage, so she'll be Justine Blackman then. And, uh, and, and, and then, you know, Justine's there on her throne, and now, you know, sinner after sinner or person after person is coming through, and it's like sheep. Goats, sheep, goats, um, demons, uh, fallen angels are coming before. Hey, uh, demon greed, see ya. And, and, and is she on her own, like making these judgment now as part of it? Well, this is where it's really important. It's, you got to always be careful about unpacking apocalyptic ideas, like these visions and these terms, and trying to too clearly visualize how it's going to be on that day. Here's the thing. Justine is in Christ. 
Kelly is in Christ, if Janine is in Christ, and they are there at judgment day as God is giving his full, final, righteous judgment, they'll be 100% in agreement with everything that's being said and done. Because they are in Christ. It's as if they are judging the world right along with him. Not one iota within them would say, I don't know about this. No, when, when it's happening, it will be, God is doing it exactly like you would have done it yourself. I'm, I'm not ready for that job yet, uh, are you? <laughs> like, I'm not sure I would always get it. But th- at that point, in Christ, you will judge the world along with him. Um, here's the biggest key for myself from judging this judging question from our passage today. So if on that day, as a member of the kingdom of God, I'll be 100% in agreement with everything Jesus says, does, every guilty sentence he hands down, I won't for a millisecond cross my mind to question his righteous judgment one iota. My union with him will be so complete that when he decides then, that will be indistinguishable for what I would have done on my own. Um, I will judge with him. So Paul's saying, if that then, why not now within the community of faith? If that will be true then, then what about now? How do you practice for such a thing? What does it mean to be a practicing Christian? Most of you have heard the statement in one way or another that uh, regarding worship, you know, well, why do we sing songs? Why do we meet around the Lord's table? Why do we gather regularly as we're commanded to do to worship? And we usually say, and it's it's not untrue, it's sometimes an un- really needs to be unpacked, but it's like, well, hey, it's we're practicing for heaven because we'll be worshiping God in heaven, so it's a little bit like the kids play practice out there in the portable. They're going to be doing this, and this is practice. This discerning of right from wrong within the community of faith is also a practice of being a practicing Christian, of being ready for our future in God. Um, Why are we called to seek justice, to instruct one another in righteousness within our little miniature pre-judgment day display of the kingdom of God? Because it's what living like Jesus looks like. Um, there, was, there was a church that I knew that, um, especially in the early 2000s when a cool name for your church was like the most important thing, and they decided they're going to be the Yes Church. They were the Yes Church. That was the name. And it was, and it, you know, we thought, hey, that's different because, you know, most people think of the church being the no church, and that'll be, you know, people, who's not going to want to go to the yes church and all of that kind of stuff? Well, remember our statement from a few weeks ago, judge nothing before it's time? We're not yet the yes church. The church that'll be there on judgment day will be the yes church, 100%. And you know what their yes will be is God's decisions on holiness and salvation and judgment, and we'll be saying yes to all of it. So right now, within our community of faith, we're, we are to be the yes and no church within our community of faith. Um, because there are things within our community that, that we, we still need to say no to. Um, this whole idea of being in Christ. Um, God's word describes us as being involved in Jesus' work. We're, cut off, we're, we're caught up in, our, in his status of, of he's been raised at the right hand of the throne of God, and somehow we, we reign with him in that. That's hard for us to unpack. 
We don't just represent Jesus to the world. We're represented by Jesus to the Father. That's an incredibly important part of this. Romans 6, 8 says we've died with him. First, 2 Timothy 2 says we will also live with him. And in between, Galatians 2 says it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So no wonder Paul's a little surprised to have to ask, don't you realize that in Christ you will judge the world? If you flip back to chapter 4 of Corinthians, verse 8, they were all excited about reigning with God, but they weren't quite so excited about judging. Um, when we get to chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, this theme's not going away yet. We're going to be reminded that every rule and authority and power will be destroyed by Jesus before he hands the kingdom over to his Father. There's not much point in speculating what spirits we're judging here and how it looks and how it happens. The important thing is that it will and it, and it must happen in Paul's thinking. So why does he go so apocalyptic about a church fight that landed in court? I think it's this power oversight. It, it just reveals a complete lack of connection of what it means to be in Christ. Because in Christ, we are future total righteousness makers. Um, when we're unable to determine right from wrong on some undisclosed minor account now, what kind of message does that portray to the world? It's a little bit of turpentine in the loaf in this idea. Just stick with me. I'm going to have a little imaginary conversation between First Corinthian Baptist Church and the world they live in. And First Corinthian Baptist Church is proclaiming, Jesus is Lord of all. He died on the cross to forgive your sins. Without his forgiveness, you're under judgment and wrath. He's going to return bodily someday and judge the entire world. But before then, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness. Not only that, he gives us the Holy Spirit to enable us to walk in victory over the world, the flesh, the devil, and the world outside of First Corinthian Baptist Church says, do you believe that? Yeah, just like we sang at the beginning of the service. We believe, we believe, we believe. Oh, that's really interesting. And then our next statement is, hey, uh, on another thing, Fred traded three cows to me, and two of them were dry, and the third one died of mad cow disease two days later, and he refuses to give me back my ten goats and my five barrels of vino, so I want to press charges on Fred against him because he wronged me, and he needs to pay. There's no way I'm letting him get away with this. Guy's a total shyster. I demand my rights. And the world says to First Corinthian Baptist, wait a minute, let me get this straight. Fred? You mean Fred from your... Church community, the community of holy ones under the authority of someone who's supposedly king of kings and lord of lords, the name above all names, you and Fred both serve that king, and yet you're fighting over livestock? We can skip the list of sins, as I said, and I'm going to come back to them next week, never fear. Um, but it, to summarize, says none of the people mentioned in verses 9 and 10 will inherit the kingdom of God. So I think Paul's saying, so why act like them now? Because that's what you were. Look at all the words. I want to I reread down here at the end of our passage. That is what some of you were. Implying you're not anymore. That's a pretty big change. Uh, he says, look at all the other changes. But you were washed. You were sanctified. 
you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's a pretty incredible change in all of those things. Um, it's an amazing mirror, isn't it? I had a friend named Brian many years ago. He grew up in a Christian home. He had a preacher for a father. Um, so you know there's trouble in the future. Anyway, as he got older, he went on his own way, eventually became a really successful tradesman down in the city, a real leader of men. He had a daughter, a wife who loved him, and a smartphone. And one day, Brian told me, without knowing it, he pocket-dialed his wife. He pocket-dialed his wife, all by accident. And she listened in as his phone was in his jersey, his work shirt, as he berated his men, he bullied them, he threw out all this profanity. And he got home, and she's like, like, is this who you are when you're out there at your job? Like, it really set her back. That's not a story about make sure you turn your phone off when you're at work. And, and, and it's like, it, it did end up bringing some shame into Brian's life, but it, something broke. And, uh, you know, he later stood up to his waist in water saying, I didn't have it together like I thought I did. I thought I knew all about God, and that, that, wasn't, that wasn't enough. And I was a martial artist, and I had a successful career. I remember him saying, I had a house, and, 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 I, and I stood in my backyard once, and I said, my house, my yard, my sky. <laughs> like, he thought he was king of the world. And God used this somehow to crack open. Yeah, you're, this, is, this is who you are. He had to admit, this is the kind of guy I am. And God used that to bring him back to repentance. I think Paul's using this story in that church for the same purpose. Just for them. To, that's why he used that word shame in there. It's not a great word. It's a little bit of a shame, shame sandwich. A shame sandwich that Paul just gave them. He says, this, this is what people are eating out there. This is your flavor. There's some turpentine in the bread here. Um, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper this morning, you, you might never have slapped a frivolous lawsuit on someone else from Renaissance before. That's kind of how a Pharisee avoids things like this. Well, I have never taken Tanya to court, so this isn't, this isn't for me. Well, what about, what have your actions filmed before a live audience, we might say? What did they display? Did I appear as someone who was cleansed? Who was made holy? Who was made right with God? You might be thinking even at this point, wait a minute, I, 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 don't, I don't even remember a point where I, I know I was cleansed or made holy, or made right with God. I didn't even know that this was an issue. It, it is an issue. And it's like a were you or weren't you. In another translation, um, Paul leaves a pretty powerful condensed version about how all that's done. How you can be washed. You can be cleansed. You can be made holy. Um, and uh, if you put that slide up for me, Cindy, right there. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God. And I love how they tease this out here. By calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and by the Spirit of our God. That, that's how you get there. Um, you, you call in the name of the Lord. You call out, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior, have mercy on me. A sinner. Uh, for the rest of us, you may feel kind of set up this morning. You thought you were going to come in and have some questions answered about rules for Christians and lawsuits or what your job will be on Judgment Day. And I've used an example of an infighting church in the first century to cause us all to consider what, what are our lives? What are they displaying? What are they displaying? I'm pretty sure that's why we have this story in our Bible. And, and, and what we do about it is, what you do about it is up to you. Um, we're here to help you. Because we're all in this together um, or at least we could be in how we display Jesus as the center of all life, as a community of faith. And next week, we're going to be applying a lot of these same ideas to specifically ethics and our sexuality as Christians and our marriages. And uh, it's all part of the same picture. Let me pray, and then we're going to meet around the Lord's table. Heavenly Father, we pray that um, you would help us to uh, have that mirror that when we talked about in catechism, um, the way that uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 talks about a, a church community and what they're displaying out there in the community and, and that that's not just to make things look good, but because of what it reveals about what's not good. Lord, we, we know that sin involves our vertical relationship with you. Forgive us for the times when um, our actions show that you are not at the top of our list of things that we worship, that we love. In the horizontal, God, sometimes, our, many times, our relationships with one another reveal some some serious deficiency in our, in our own holiness. And then on the inside, a broken relationship with ourselves, the, the lies we tell ourselves, the things we do that damage ourselves, the, the way we even use our own lives as if they are our own rather than what we proclaim to have given to you. I pray that we would live in a kingdom that uh, displays that we actually believe there's a king and that his instructions are our description of freedom. That we would live in a way that shows that you, Lord, our Lord, that your name is majestic in all the earth. And for certain here at Renaissance Baptist Church in Brooklyn. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. For more information, please visit brooklynrbc.ca. The link is also in our bio. On behalf of the Renaissance Baptist Church of Brooklyn, we pray you have a blessed week.